Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Hey, good morning. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified. Uh, it's my pleasure this morning to greet Steve Mason from Arizona. Hi, Steve. Hi, Francie. Welcome to the show. It's really nice to have you here. Thank Steve you for having I've, me. Yeah, Steve and I've worked together on a couple of things, and uh, he's a really great investigator, and I'm really happy to have, have you here, Steve. Um, so we're going to be talking about neighborhood canvases today, and uh, Steve has a lot of experience uh, in that area, not only in the private sector, but the background that he had his former life. You want to talk about your former life, Steve? Just a little bit? I'm sorry? You want to talk about your former life, your pre-private oh, sure. investigator life? Yeah, so prior to becoming a private investigator, I spent two decades in law enforcement. Um, most of my career was spent with the U.S. Marshal Service as a criminal investigator. Mm, mm-hmm. Now, um, what is interesting to me after reading what you have written, Steve, is that how often when you were with the marshal's office, you guys did neighborhood canvases. Yeah, so during my tenure with the marshal service, I was assigned to the violent crimes unit. And as part of that, I was tasked over to Philly Homicide. So uh, when Philly, Philadelphia would get a new homicide case, we had a basically a task force set up and we would go out and have different assignments and work on various parts of the case. So, um, how does the, how do, what is this, the hierarchy in Philadelphia? How does the marshal's office fit into the other law enforcement areas? Philadelphia, the marshal's office. So they have the first established federal or joint federal task force. And it was started probably around the time that Haida became a thing. And they have ag- various agencies throughout the state participate. So you have, you know, different federal law enforcement agencies, state and local and county, and they all provide detectives who sit at this task force and investigate different violent crimes that the various task force members bring. Okay, and this is way before 9-11, right? Yeah, I, you know, I don't know exactly when it started, but I do know it's the nation's oldest task force of federal law enforcement. So I'm, I'm guessing that, you know, it must predate, you know, by nine eleven by quite a few years. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, so, um, so does, does Philadelphia also have, like many other communities, have a sheriff's department and a, you know, local police department, and then the marshal's office as well. Correct. So Philadelphia Police Department, they're the primary law enforcement jurisdiction in the city of Philadelphia. And the city of Philadelphia is so large that the county is just the city. So the sheriff's office primarily handles jails and courts and, I guess, probation issues. And then the city police have the primary law enforcement jurisdiction. Okay. All right. And um, how does how does the marshal's office differ from those other two enforcement agencies? The marshal's office is a federal law enforcement agency. Their primary jurisdiction is over federal criminal offenses. But what's unique about the marshal service, unlike other federal agencies, is they also have statutory authority for any criminal offense that's on the book. So whether it's local ordinance, state statute or a federal statute, they have law enforcement jurisdiction over all those issues. So the marshal service, what they kind of do is they bring in federal resources to help handle state and local crime. So like TV, do you get pushback from the local law enforcement folks? 
not so much with the marshal service. I, I see that happen a lot with the FBI. What's kind of unique about the marshal service is because they're so they're so down in the trenches every day with local law enforcement that a lot of local law enforcement view the marshal service as almost like another local uh, jurisdiction mm. and. It's kind of, we always joke that it's kind of the blue collar of federal law enforcement. Um, it's a lot of street work and not a whole lot of, you know, office work. I know with the, you know, with the FBI, they, they spent a long time building cases at their offices and, you know, they're very good at filing paper trials, whereas the marshal service is very much an industry type of law enforcement agency, knocking on doors, arresting fugitives, conducting street interviews, things like that. Interesting. So you've got a lot of activity going on. Yeah, to say the least. <laughs> to say the least. So how long, when did you start uh, as a private investigator? I got licensed in 2016, but I didn't start working until 2017. I was still, I still was working with the Department of Justice at the time at the Attorney General's uh, detail in Washington, D.C. So obviously that was a conflict of interest. So I officially started in 2017. So you're in Arizona now. How did you get to Arizona? I grew up in Chicago, and I was working as an officer, a state officer there. When I got hired by the Marshal Service, I was transferred to Minneapolis, Minnesota, promoted to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and then promoted to Phoenix, Arizona with the Marshals. So um, at the end of my career there, I decided to stay in Arizona. Interesting. That's, that's kind of a big culture change. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, growing up in the Midwest and then going to the East Coast, I thought was a huge, <laughs> huge culture shock. But then when I came out to the, I don't know if you can call Arizona the West Coast, but it feels like that. And then when I came out West, it was a whole another different ball game altogether. And I, I really like changing environments. I kind of feel like that's been my, uh, my strong suit is the, the ability to adapt to different environments very easily. Mm-hmm. And uh, it keeps life interesting. Exactly. And, and how did your skills transfer over? It sounds like fairly easily, but uh, did you have any bumps along the way? I had a ton of bumps. One of the, one of the big problems is when you go from law enforcement to private investigation is you have to learn how to access the same information you had as a police officer, but now you have to access it as a private individual. (laughs) So while a lot of skill sets like interviewing and, you know, things like that transfer over, it's, it's a huge learning process. And I started, I started researching um, how to become a private investigator about five years before I decided to do it. And I started reading blogs. Um, I took a bunch of college classes that were being offered for private investigation and try to, you know, learn as much about it as I could. Mm. Yeah, for sure. And so trying to interview people without the badge, was that difficult or did you just kind of fall into it because it was comfortable for you? I think it's actually, to be honest, I think it's almost easier. A lot of people are intimidated, you know, when they, when they come across law enforcement and they want to be interviewed the initial mm-hmm. thought is, oh, I'm in trouble or I'm going to end up in court. And I think as a private individual, it's just easier to blend in to, you know, just be able to relate to the common people that, you know, on the doors that you're knocking on. Um, I don't know. I, for some reason, I, I feel like it's actually easier as a private investigator to get people to talk to you. Interesting. So when people see you, do they still perceive you as, as a cop or have you merged into the general I, population? I get told a lot that I do look like a cop. I have <laughs> short hair because I've I've been bald since I was a little kid, so I've never really had hair, and I'm somewhat <laughs> clean-shaven, and I still believe when I go to work, I, I still wear a dress shirt and dress pants, and, um, you know, and that, that's kind of an interesting nuance, right, when you're, when you're trying to conduct an interview is you don't want to be so overdressed that people don't want to talk to you or they're intimidated right. to talk to you, but at the same time, you still have to have that command presence of, you know, that you're a professional and you're knocking on the door and you're not some stranger that they don't open the door for. 
Absolutely. And, and guys have a much more difficult time with this than, than women do, both with dress and with demeanor and with access because people are cautious. Exactly. And, and I, I've been told quite a bit by people who do open the door to talk to me that, oh, you, you didn't look very threatening, so I opened the door. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, they, and they'll comment like, you know, you looked like you were professional, you had a dress shirt on, and we didn't perceive you as a threat, so we opened the door. That's that's good. That's a very good tip. That's one we should all pay attention to, really. So, exactly. um, so I'm really interested in the neighborhood canvas because this is something that you never hear talked about, but it's a really important part of investigation. I I don't think I've ever I, seen an article about this subject until yours. I actually think it's probably the most important step in. In a case, you know, especially if you're working criminal defense work, but even civil litigation, I mean, it, it really allows you to get outside of the confines of discovery that you're presented with or, you know, just basic reports that you're receiving as a private investigator. And I mean, that, that's how, in my mind, this is how you develop new witnesses, discover evidence, new theories, you know, you debunk old theories and there's something magical that happens when you get out and you just start putting some elbow grease into these cases. Well, don't you see things from a completely different perspective as well? Even the, the environment, the landscape surrounding the crime scene, if it's a, it's a crime scene. Correct. I mean, the, the thing is, you know, in, in investigative work, you have to get a feel for what happened, what the environment was, who was there, how did it happen? And, when, when you get down on the street level and, and you see things for yourself, you can kind of start to picture how things happen or, or maybe even how things didn't happen. You know, we've all had these mm-hmm. cases where somebody says they saw something and you go there and you stand in the exact spot that they were standing and you realize that, no, they couldn't see that. Yeah, that's for sure. I, I had a, Years ago, I had a, a criminal case, uh, a murder case. And the uh, there was one critical witness, and when we went finally got the crime scene photos, which were which they held back for months, like we got them a week before trial, uh, it turned out there was a big canvas uh, structure from the guy next door that he couldn't possibly have seen anything at all. So you never know. Yeah, I mean, really weird things happen. We were just out on a canvas uh, a couple weeks ago on a, tr- a fatal truck accident where, the, where an attorney had been killed. And as we were out there canvassing, the trooper who investigated the accident just happened to drive by and he stopped and he chatted with us. And he basically gave us a 30-minute interview without a request. And we learned so much about the case that we didn't find in police reports. And, and I mean, just really weird things happen when you get out there and start pouring energy into these cases. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So so we're going to go to break on uh, a couple of minutes here, but let's start with uh, when you get a case, um, do you always do a neighborhood canvas? Or is I it like selective? to do a neighborhood canvas if I can. Sometimes it comes down to budget, obviously. Um, these things do take a lot of time and resources, mm-hmm. but it, it's it's definitely always a suggestion to, that I give to the to law firm who's hiring me. Okay. All right. So, um, so s- say you're going to do a neighborhood canvas. How do, how do you start? Because you have a process that I don't think most people use. So the first thing I do is you have to familiarize yourself with the case. I mean, you have to understand the people involved, the places, the evidence that is being put forth, and how it all relates into the scene. Um, you know, and once you understand that, then usually my next step is I, I start, I start looking at the scene, you know, utilizing tools like Google earth or Google maps and just, you know, start to really see how, how things start to piece, try to establish boundaries that I'm going to want for the canvas, you know, and that, that's a whole art in and of itself is deciding how large or how small your canvas boundaries are going to be. And, Kind of what I find is I always try to err on the side of making it larger than it needs to be because mm-hmm. otherwise you miss things that are really important. Um, this actually happened to me uh, a couple weeks ago on a 
on a sex assault case, I didn't make the canvas large enough. And in talking with some people in the neighborhood, I realized that there was a neighbor who lived, you know, a block and a half down who had seen what had happened, but she was in her car. So of course she wasn't at her house. Mm. And had this one neighbor not told me, I would have never went to her house and knocked on her door to talk to her. And she ended up being the kind of the key to that case. So, you know, that's, that's such an important part is trying to figure out how large should the canvas be. That's really a good point. Let's take a quick break, Steve, because I want to come back to this. I think it's a really important area. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips, and practical advice. Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now. 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to PIs Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at one eight six six four seven two five seven eight eight. That's one eight six six four seven two five seven eight eight. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to f r a n c i e at piesdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. I'm here with Steve Mason. He's a private investigator in Arizona. Are you in Phoenix, Steve? I'm in Gilbert, Arizona, which is a suburb of oh, Phoenix. Oh, Gilbert, sure. Uh, yeah, we know people from Gilbert from the studio, don't we? <laughs> uh, my executive <laughs> producer uh, is from Gilbert, uh, Sandra Rogers, my wonderful producer. Um, anyway, so um, let's talk more about uh, you were describing setting up your parameters. So tell me what you're looking for. So I'm looking, and obviously it's going to be case specific, specific, but I'm looking for anybody who might have been close enough to the incident that they either heard something, saw something, or maybe even they're just caught up in the rumor bell about what people are saying after the incident, you know, because that's always good intelligence, even if it's not a witness statement per se. So I'm kind of looking for, you know, anything that fits that parameters. I'm also looking for businesses that might have had surveillance cameras. Um, you know, video is a great thing. I don't know about all areas, but a lot of HOAs out in my area have license plate readers at the front of the neighborhoods. Oh, so really? Those are things I'm looking for. Yeah, I've, I'm coming coming across that quite a bit, especially with you know higher end um, condo communities where they actually have license plate readers that are capturing people coming coming and going from the neighborhood. So that's and, always really great. And and do you have to have a subpoena to access that? I mean, it, it's going to come down to the individual who possesses what you want. Um, you know, I, I always go make contacts, and I'll obviously ask for it. 
Sometimes they'll let you view it but not take it with you. You know, one important thing to do when you're doing a canvas is to have letters of preservation with you that you can fill in. That way, as you come across these things, if people aren't cooperative, you can fill that out, ask them to preserve it and hand it to them, and then follow up later with a subpoena. So for people that don't know what that what that is, could you explain that a little bit? Sure. So a letter of preservation, basically, you'll, you'll either type it up on your letterhead or you'll ask the law firm you're working with to put it on their letterhead. But it describes the, the evidence that you're wanting to obtain, and you're basically commanding them to preserve that evidence and not destroy it because it's important evidence in you know, either civil litigation or criminal litigation. And then, so what I do in my letters is I, I will state right in there that, you know, we think this is important evidence in litigation before, you know, the county court. We're asking you to preserve it. Please distribute this notice to whoever has access to it. Basically, you're just commanding them to preserve it while you go get a subpoena. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and whether or not it's court enforceable on a criminal case, you know, it depends on who you talk to, but... There's definitely a, a spoilization of evidence issue if someone does destroy evidence that you believe they have, and mm-hmm. some courts will allow you to, to testify to that. So uh, if you run into uh, a residence that has external cameras, uh, what kind of response do you get from those kind of folks when you give them a, kind of, a letter of preservation? Uh, generally, it's not... Good. A lot of people get they get very scared about having to come to court, or you know, a lot of times once I start handing someone that letter, they'll just comply and give give me you know whatever I'm asking for. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of mixed, and I think it kind of depends on the type of neighborhood that you're in as well. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you get more pushback from homeowners associations, or do you get more pushback from general neighborhoods? I think I get more pushback from homeowners associations. Usually there is a management structure in place and they're worried about liability or being involved. And um, inherently you end up getting a call from their general counsel asking what you're doing. Okay. So you start out by looking at Google Maps and you're looking um, uh, for both the, I'm assuming, residences behind your residence in question as well as ones alongside and in front of? Is that correct? Yeah, and it'll depend on the type of incident you're investigating. You know, if it's a, if it's a vehicle accident, I may go really wide because even video or observations of vehicles before they got to the crash site can be very important, you know, mm-hmm. especially if you're dealing with, like, a speed issue, you know, where someone's drag racing and they end up getting into an accident and killing someone. You know, having those observations, even if they're blocks away, you know, could be very valuable valuable to your case. Um, so it, you really just kind of have to look at the incident and kind of make a judgment call as to, you know, who could have seen what, heard what, you know, and how large that area needs to be to capture that. Um, usually what I'll do is, as I'm reading Discovery, you know, I'm kind of making a checklist of things that I'm interested in. So when it comes to the canvas, I look at that checklist and I say, okay, you know, I'm really interested in these issues. You know, what what does that encompass? Mm-hmm. Can you give us some examples? Sure. So, like, if I'm going back to the car accident, if I'm working, if I'm working a, you know, like a fatal car accident, and I'm seeing issues of speed, you know, there's witnesses that heard drag racing. I, I know I need to make that canvas very large because I. You know, as an investigator, I know these vehicles are traveling large distances in a very short period of time. So, you know, if you focus too too much in on just where the crash occurred, you can miss all this great evidence. You know, that's way outside of the crash site. So you're you're establishing your area. You were just giving an example, for example, uh, of an accident. Yeah, so I was talking about we were working on a fatal car accident where some vehicles were drag racing, you know, and because we know that those these vehicles cover a large amount of distance in a very short period of time, that that canvas, you know, it ended up going about a half a mile out from where the crash site was. Wow, and, that's you know, a waste. That was very, that was very, yeah, that was very critical to be able to get video of these cars racing down the road, 
you know, talking to witnesses that heard the cars speeding, things like that. And, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So. Okay, so after you kind of established your geographical uh, boundaries, um, what is, what's the next step you take? The next step I take is I figure out what the interview format's going to be. Now, obviously, as you talk to different types of witnesses, your questions are going to be different. But I definitely nail down, you know, what's going to be the general format, you know, of the questions. Because when you go out and you do these canvases, you're going to talk to dozens and dozens of people, you know, uh, preferably anyways. And you kind of you kind of just want to be consistent, keep the canvassing moving. You know, 90% of the people you probably run into aren't going to know anything about what happened. Mm-hmm. So, you, you know, you've got, you've got to keep the, you got to keep it flowing. And to me, having a, just a general format really helps out with that. And also if you have other people assisting you, it, it keeps everyone on the same page so that everyone's asking kind of the same questions. Um, yes. You know, cause some people are better with, you know, interviews than others. So. Yeah, that's a really good point. The consistency of the questions that are asked is really important because then you can compare uh, the information you're getting as well. Correct. Okay. And then, so, then what do you oh, – I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, so, you know, once I get the format hammered out, then I'll say I'm going to figure out what equipment I want to bring. You know, and that's going to be everything from notepads to, you know, letters of preservation, cameras, um, interestingly, I found a, a new app that I use on my phone for scene canvassing now. It's called Timestamp Camera, all one word. Okay. And it's an application for smartphones that, you know, it works like your regular camera on your phone, but it records it time and date stamps the photograph, and it also embeds the GPS coordinates on the photograph. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a really nice low-profile way to take pictures and videos when you're out canvassing without attracting a lot of attention with a 800 millimeter lens. <laughs> and uh, it, you know, the nice thing is, you know, for PIs, we love to have that time and date stamp on our photos if we can. So it's just an easy program to have that embedded on the original photo. And it's nice and handy. I mean. I don't know when I've used a camera. I mean, it's probably been years now because the only thing I carry with me is my smartphone. Yeah, takes- you know, and it's, it's, these, these smartphones are great tools. You know, I mean, we're, we're very lucky to work in the day and age where we can carry a mobile computer and a phone and, you know, a mobile computer, a phone, and a camera all in one device in the palm of our hand. It's amazing. Exactly. And the pictures are typically better. At least I, at one point I did a test. Uh, I went to look at evidence. I took my camera and my smartphone and took pictures with both just as a, to find out the comparison. And my smartphone is better. They were much yeah. clearer, more my, much more precise. Yeah. I did a I did a night shoot at a scene a couple of weeks ago, and I used you know a really nice expensive photo camera, a video camera, and my phone. And out of the three, my phone took the best night shots out of all of them. Really, really. That's it kind of made my heart sink when I thought about how much I spent on camera equipment. <laughs> <laughs> and what kind of a phone was it? Uh, just a regular, you know, an iPhone 8. Okay. So not even the newest of iPhones. So you haven't even tried the 11 yet? No, I, well, I'm due for an upgrade soon. So once um, once that happens, I'll make the jump. Yeah, I'm really interested. I don't have the 8, 11 either. In fact, I'm even below yours. I have a 7. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, so I'm really behind the times. Um but uh, I'm really interested in the 11 because it looks amazing. At least yep, photographing yep, yeah. it looks amazing. Yeah, having those multiple lenses, I, I believe the new one, there's like a combination of three lenses that they use mm-hmm. for you know, telephoto and macro. and um, It's amazing. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so you've, got your, you've got your investigative protocol all lined up and you've got your geographical area so what do you do next so i guess the last thing you know is like so you get your letters of preservation together um i don't know about all jurisdictions in arizona a private investigator on a criminal case can get blank subpoenas from the circuit court 
so, or from the clerk of court. So depending on what I'm working on, I'll go get blank subpoenas for those people that are going to stonewall me and give them a date and time to produce themselves. Um, you know, the one, the one thing I would definitely say before you begin a canvas is to have discussions with the law firm that you're working with to kind of find out what boundaries they want you to stay within. And kind of what comes to mind as I say this is taking statements. Uh, you know, some firms want everything recorded from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Other firms want you to do a preliminary interview. Then if it looks good for their client, then take a statement. So, you know, I would definitely say, you know, talk with your attorney who's directing this case to make sure you understand what his or her boundaries are for the canvas. Yeah, that's very, um, really important. I'm glad you brought that up, Steve, because attorneys have really definite ideas about recording or not recording, particularly when yeah, it's a criminal it, case. I can talk to five attorneys this week and all five are going to watch something different. <laughs> and, you know, and sometimes it's even case specific as to what they want. I mean, I have one law firm that I do work for. All they want is a written statement. They don't. They want no recordings. That you know, they want it all written on paper, notarized. Uh, you know, so if I was doing a canvas for them, now I have to bring my notary stamp. So you know, you're kind of gathering the equipment that you need. Um, you know, one thing I would say is in regard to equipment that I don't know if a lot of people have, but I would say definitely invest in a basic evidence kit. You know, it doesn't have to be anything expensive, but, you know, I just have a tackle box that I keep in, my, in the trunk of my car. You know, it's got bags, vials, tweezers, gloves, you know, just very basic equipment, but mm-hmm. stuff that I can use to collect evidence if I do come across something new. That's um, a good idea. Because nothing destroys a good case faster than, you know, destroying evidence. For sure. So I would definitely say, you know, invest in 50 bucks and put that together. That's a that's a really good idea to, to carry that in your trunk, uh, for sure, because you're always going to need it when you don't have it. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's not it's not an expensive piece of gear, and it's not one that you're going to use a lot, so it'll it'll last a long time. I mean, I I put one together when I first started, and I still have the you know the original kit. And the only thing I've really done is add some evidence tape as I've gone along, and you know, it's it doesn't have to be very expensive to be you know uh, very functional. Yeah. So now, you mentioned um, notarizing statements. That's something new to me. So talk about that a little bit. Is that something required in Arizona? It's not required, but on civil cases that are going to go before an arbitrator, they can submit a, a notarized statement in lieu of having the witness appear. So it's, it's kind of a, it's a strategy tactic that some of the law firms will use, especially on these motor vehicle cases. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's generally where I'll, I'll run into that when they want something notarized. It's usually a, a vehicle accident case that we're working on. Um, so... So even though you're the investigator conducting the interview, uh, you don't have to be an independent third party to notarize it? No, because what I'm doing is I'm, I'm just certifying their identity uh, you know, as to who is doing the statement. Um, Good point. There's, there's, case, there's case law in Arizona about this, but generally a, an investigator can notarize uh, a written statement by a citizen. That's uh, very, very interesting. I just uh, have not run into that in cases in California from outside the state when people want information. Um, sometimes that happens, but not uh, within California. So that's interesting. Good idea, yeah. actually. Yep. Okay, so we're going to so, go to another. Know, go, I'm sorry, Steve, what? Oh, I was going to say, so after preparation, then obviously you have execution, <laughs> the almighty execution. Okay, we're going to come back. We'll take a break, and we're going to come back and execute. We'll be right back. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. 
PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips, and practical advice. Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's Choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to PIs Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to F R A N C I E at PIsDeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Steve Mason from Arizona, a licensed private investigator, and I are discussing. Neighborhood canvases. And Steve, you were just talk, beginning to talk about execution, executing your uh, canvas. So let's talk about that. How do you start? Sure. So, so I kind of look at it as there's two buckets of information I'm looking for. There's information I'm going to get from people, and then there's information from observations that I'm going to make while I'm out there. And those observations are going to be things like, you know, what does the scene look like? What types of vehicles are present during this time of day? Are there video camera systems? You know, just kind of whatever I see. So those are really kind of the two buckets of information I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I know like when I do a canvas, so there's, there's the people have different theories on whether you should start from the inside and work out or start from the outside and work in. If I, my personal preference is if I'm, gonna, if I'm doing, you know, a true neighborhood of, you know, how, you know, like a housing community or somewhere, I, I kind of go against what most people say. And I start from the inside and work out. And the reason I do that is I feel the people closest to the scene probably are going to have the most pertinent information. Uh And what I've experienced is when I start from the outside in, by the time I get close to where the scene happened, the phone tree has already been activated and people in the neighborhood are calling each other and the word is getting out that I'm in the neighborhood. So for, for me, I go straight for the, you know, I go straight for the heart where I think the most vital information is going to be and then work my way out. Um, I think a lot of traditionalists are going to tell you to work from the outside in. Um, I'm I'm thinking, Steve, that if you're working, it seems to me like if you're working from the inside out, that by the time you get to the outer limits, you're going to have a lot of information that will assist you in those interviews as well. Exactly, and one of my recent experiences where I was starting on the inside and going out, um, you know, I learned that someone way outside of my canvas boundary had seen something, and it was an address I would have, you know, probably never have gone to, but I learned about that individual early on from the the first person I spoke to, so Mm -hmm. it really helped me to retool and rethink how large the canvas needed to be, Um, so, you know, there's a lot of advantages to doing that. So what what would you say be the minimum area that you would cover? Uh, I mean, definitely the people. I mean, if it's if it's an incident that happens, uh, say you're investigating a domestic abuse at a home, you know, I would definitely go three houses, four houses on either side, plus the neighbors across the street. Uh-huh. Um, 
you know, if it's something that happened out in the middle of the street, then obviously you're going to need to go as far as the eye can see. And what about and the again, uh, kinda, what about the adjoining property on the backside? Yeah, you know that's a that's a good point. You definitely want to cover the backside. A lot of a lot of people forget that, and I've had times where I forget to do that as well. You know, there's definitely a lot of people see things from the back, especially if they're in a two story home and you know they mm-hmm. have a pretty good field of view. So you definitely want to pay attention to that. You know, and that's kind of where in the preparation using things like Google Earth, Google Maps, you know, products like that, you can you can kind of really get a good feel for what's visible from what you know what angles. Right, that's true. That's what did we do before we had Google Maps? I mean, it's just <laughs> that's a, the go-to well, we, place for practically everything we, these days. To be honest, what we did is we did good neighborhood canvassing. I mean, <laughs> neighborhood canvassing is as old as the art of investigation. Yeah. You know, you go back to the biblical days and it was, hey, go see what's in that land. And they were canvassing that land, you know, prior to war. And they're, you know, getting a feel for the community. Who's going to be, you know, who are they going to have to fight? And mm-hmm. Unfortunately, there's this over-reliance in this day and age on databases, social media, things of that sort. Open source intelligence is the big buzzword these days. You know, and all that stuff's really good, but it's people that connect those dots and put perspective to the data. It's not, you know, the data's only so good, but you have to understand how it fits. You're absolutely right. You know, you have to go to the street because it always, I'm always amazed, it always looks different. If you read a police yeah, report and then you go out and look at what, what it, wherever it happened, it looks completely different. It's either bigger or smaller or further away or closer than you thought it was. It's it's very weird. You know, and d- databases are great because you can learn a lot about someone before you ever encounter them. You know, you can learn what they do for a living, if they have criminal history, things of that sort. But, you know, until you get in front of the individual and make contact with them and, and see what's going on, you just you just don't have that perspective and I mean, that's so valuable. It's, you know, you can't, you can't emphasize it enough. So what, what would you say if you can think of one, what was the biggest nugget you found when you were doing a neighborhood canvas? Um, I've had quite a few different cases where just the nuggets have been huge. Um, We had a case against the FBI. I think you and I might've talked about this case once before, but, we went out and did a canvas and had found a video that the FBI said didn't exist, even though the individual who possessed the video had the FBI agent's card and had told us that they tried to give them the video and they didn't want it. Um, <laughs> that, that was a really good one because it exonerated the client of a, a pretty hefty charge. Um, wow. You know, there it's we. I was doing one recently with... Um, an allegation of an individual who had pulled a gun on a police officer and he was a concealed carry weapons permit holder on his own property. And some undercover officers tried to arrest him in his front yard. And the way they had approached him, he had no idea they were law enforcement. And so he pulled a gun on, on these, these officers as they approached. And he was subsequently charged with a crime that, you know, carries a very, very significant penalty of convicted. Mm-hmm. And in talking to the neighbors, you know, a lot of the neighbors had called 911 because they thought it was a robbery in progress and were concerned because they didn't identify the cops as police officers. And what was interesting is when we got the discovery packet, they had taken photographs of all the officers wearing raid vests, you know, pictures of their cars or UC cars with the, le- the red and blue lights flashing. And in talking to the neighbors, none of them had seen that, you know. Wow. And then one lady had one of the new doorbell cameras across the street that had captured the incident and it was not as described by the police. And, so they fi- so they you know, faked the photographs? Well, so what ended up happening is after the individual challenged the police, he ran inside and had initially barricaded himself. So until he figured out it was law enforcement, so there was this huge law enforcement response. They pulled back, established a perimeter. So my thought is, my my belief is that they had put their vests on after the initial takedown once it turned into a standoff situation. Oh, wow. Um, I just don't know. You know, I, 
a lot of times you don't know if it's one of those charges where the police were very pissed and they felt, you know, that this guy threatened their life with a firearm. And, you know, it's just, it's hard to get into their mind, but those are very tough cases to defend when you have a whole squad of detectives saying one thing and the defendant is by himself with no evidence. You know, luckily, you know, know sometimes I, you can go out. And, and I guess I understand why law enforcement does that when they're trying to um, investigate a case. But I had all, I also had a case where the two cops were dressed up just in black clothes and black beanies and driving a black car. And my client, the, of course, the suspect, just freaked out because he thought, he thought they were a gang called Border Brothers that dresses that way, and uh, they were after him. I, I just, I don't, I guess I understand from one perspective, but it doesn't make sense on another. It's too risky. Yeah, you know, and sometimes, you know, these are critical incidents in the officer's mind when trying to take these people down and they initially resist. And I think when they're interviewed after the fact, their default answer is they default back to their training, you know, what, of what they were supposed to do, not necessarily what they did do in the heat of the moment. Mm-hmm. And because I've had these cases where the officers swear that they activated their reds and blue lights, and it turned out they only hit the one switch that activated the headlights that, you know, in the heat of the moment trying to take the suspect down, they didn't hit all the switches to activate all the lights. And right. it was just an honest mistake, but in their heart of hearts, they were sure, you know, they were sitting there that they had activated the reds and blues when they, in fact, they hadn't, you know, and, and those are key issues when these cases go to trial because it's, you know, what was, what was the defendant perceiving at the time of the arrest, you know? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, okay. This is, this is really fascinating. So, um, so when you're doing the interviews, you're, you're, you've, done everything you're going to do to prepare and you're going through systematically interviewing in your case from the inside out then then what then what do you do so i'm looking to do the interviews i'm trying to go out there at the same time as the as when the incident occurred because those are the people most likely to have seen something okay people are creatures of habit so if they're if the incident's at 2 p.m., chances are they're home every day at 2 p.m., so those are the people I'm trying to catch, you know, and interview them. You know, I'm going to document everyone I talk to, but I'm also going to document everyone I didn't talk to, and you're going to have to be a professional pain in the rear and, you know, keep following up <laughs> with these individuals these individuals until you can talk to everybody. So I think that's kind of an important thing that not a lot of people like to do is, you know, to consistently try to make contact with people until they talk. And, but it's, you know, it's very important because sometimes it's that fifth attempt to contact someone that you finally get a hold of them and they give you great information. Um, the other thing I'm going to do is I'm going to follow up with some of the key witnesses within a few days. What I've noticed is when you're out there canvassing, it generates a buzz in the community. A lot of people start talking about what's going on and new information surfaces. Or sometimes people are nervous when you talk to them and they remember something after you've left, but for whatever mm-hmm. reason, they didn't call you. So, you know, it's definitely important to follow up with the key witnesses. So, is it kind of an interesting phenomena that happens with people when you talk to them a second time? For some reason, they now think they know you and they're much more friendly and much more relaxed. It's it's weird to me. It always happens. And uh, even though they're really... Uh, cautious when you first talk to them the second time or third time it's a completely different scenario sometimes that second interview is easier to build a rapport you know because you've been to their house you've seen their pet dog or their child playing in the front you know something that you can latch on to and talk about to kind of break the ice and, right um you know you're that, that that's a really good point i, I had a case in uh, fact this week um the first time I had interviewed this lady, she was very standoffish. And the second time I had made contact with her, she acted like we were best friends and, you know, <laughs> offered me coffee and juice and water. And it was a completely different feel. And I think it was, she just felt more comfortable with that second time, you know, because I didn't catch her off guard, you know, like I did mm-hmm. the first time. So, 
Um, which brings up a question. When somebody offers you coffee or water, what do you do? I I don't take, well, one, I, usually I'm out there for quite a long time, so I don't want to have to use the bathroom and leave. So I generally decline it or I just politely, you know, I'll thank them for offering and just let them know, you know, I've already had too much coffee today. You know, I'll make some joke that I have a bladder the size of a child or something like that. Uh-huh. Um, it, it's kind of my thing. I don't, I don't like to take beverages from people. If I, if I, if it's really hot, like 120 degree day in Phoenix and someone offers me a water that's bottled and I see them pull it and I can crack the seal, then sometimes I'll take them up on it. <laughs> Just so right. I don't die of dehydration. Yeah. Yeah, it's really but, a judgment call, but you do have to be careful. Yeah, which is another thing you want to think about is bringing snacks and liquids with you because you could be out there for several hours and, you know, you want to stay hydrated, obviously, you have some snacks, so you have your energies high, you know, because it can, your energy can get depleted very fast when you get lots of rejection. Um, <laughs> you know, because it, it's really kind of like door-to-door sales. I mean, if you think right. about it, you're going door-to-door, you're knocking and you're trying to sell someone on the idea of talking to you about something they most likely don't want to talk about. Um, you know, if you're working on a criminal defense case, usually that person in the neighborhood's mind is guilty, you know, prior to trial. And um, We get a lot of sex offense cases, and those are very tough to get people to talk to you when someone's being charged with a sex offense. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that's, that's, that's probably the hardest thing to do. Well, that brings up a question, too. So when you don't find somebody at home, do you leave a business card or not? I don't. Um, I know some people do. I, I've i tried that before, and I've never had good success with it. I mean, it's always a judgment call. Like, I always want to have business cards with me, obviously, because it's a tool and sometimes a situation. So like, if, I'm, if I go out to some place and it's... I know it's a one-shot deal because the budget's not going to allow me to go back and I don't have a phone number for that person, then, yeah, I'll, I'll leave them a note or a business card asking them to call me. Um, like something comes to mind, a canvas that was about nine hours one direction, and I knew the client wasn't going to pay me to drive 18 hours more than once, and it was oh, wow. on a, an Indian reservation where I didn't have phone numbers for a lot of the folks. So in that case, I did leave a lot of notes. Um, and I kind of knew that going in, so I pre-printed a letter that had uh-huh. my information on it, and so I left letters at all the doors that of people who did not answer. Well, that's a good. That's a really good point. So you uh, typed something up and signed it. Yeah, I just typed up you know on a blank word document. You know, hey, tried to get a hold of you today. Reference an incident that happened in the neighborhood. Please give me a call. My number. You know, and then. I sign it and put a date on it and leave it in their door. Um, I, I try to, in those types of cases, I try to avoid letterhead. I don't know why, but for some reason, when people see letterhead and they see a title on there, it just pushes them away. So I just leave them a very plain note. I just realized, um, <laughs> I just realized, Steve, that uh, our wonderful engineer, Mr. Aaron, has been trying to notify me that we're out of time. So I am so sorry I didn't see his note, and we need to close the show. Thank you so much for being on it, and uh, thank you to Stephen Mason in Phoenix, Arizona, and uh, it's PIs Declassified. I'm Francie Keeler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time here on the Voice America Variety Channel. 